Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. In each edition of this podcast, I talk to a maker, designer, artist or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by designer Peter Ting, who is best known for his work in ceramics. During an eclectic career, he has been head of homeware at Asprey, created collections for companies such as Royal Crown Derby and Cumbra Crystal, lectured at numerous universities, and is currently creative director of the classic British brand Thomas Good. Not content with that, in 2016, he joined forces with writer and porcelain officiado Ying Zhen to create Ting Ying, which showcases artists in Blanc de Chine or Dohua porcelain. This September, his pieces will feature in a new display at the V&A entitled Blanc de Chine, a continuous conversation, which promises to look at historic and contemporary pieces made from the material. Peter's designs are in the collection of various museums around the globe, including the aforementioned V&A in London and the Museum of Arts and Design in New York. Peter, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for interviewing me. That is, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, I mean, shall we kick off by talking about the display at the V&A? Yep. Um, it's beginning in September called uh, Blanc de Chine, a continuous conversation. Yep. Uh, what can visitors expect to see? Oh, they could expect to see um, something quite stellar. Now, that word I don't normally use to describe <laughs> <laughs> myself. But this word came from um, Alan Graves, who right. is the curator at um, uh, the V&A. Um, we had a very brief meeting, uh, and Alan said, well, it's up to you to do a stellar show now. <laughs> so um, I'm doing a stellar show. Okay. <laughs> who will be in this stellar show? Oh, there's going to be lots of people. But before I describe the stellar show, I wanted to say that this is one of the rare times that two departments have worked together, mm. which is fantastic. Mm. So the Chinese department, and the show is curated by Xiao Xing Li from uh, the Asia department. She works in the, uh, so Asia uh, encompasses Japan, China, and uh, Korea. She is the curator of the show, and it happens in two locations. One is in the center of the uh, Chinese gallery and on the ground floor, where there would be eight cases, some contemporary work, but most of it would be about the um, history of Blanc de Chine and the way it traveled from China to the West. Uh, the other one is in Gallery 146 on the sixth floor, the Ceramics Gallery, and uh, which is a beautiful space with dual aspect windows. There are six artists in the show. Uh, one of them is a Chinese artist, Su Xianzong, a Dutch artist, Babs Handman, a uh, British artist, Lucille Lewin, myself, mm. British artist, uh, an American artist called Jeffrey Mitchell, and a Chinese-American artist called Liang Wanying. We will call her Yomi mm. to make pronunciation easier <laughs> from now on. So, very good. And can you uh, can we touch a little bit on the the history of Blanc de Chine? I mean, you talk about it on your your website a bit, and obviously it's going to be a component of the, the display that's happening at the V&A. So, so yeah, just for the listeners, the background of the material. Well, Blanc de Chine, as it is literally translated, is white of China. So this incredible white porcelain. Uh, came with Marco Polo in the 14th century from China. It left the port of Quanzhou, which oddly enough now 
is the nearest airport that I fly into when I go to Doha. So Quanzhou was a thriving port at that time, and Marco Polo left Quanzhou to come back to、um, Italy. So he brought with him a small jar. It is a jar without a lid, and it's also known as I've heard it been described in various ways, but this is called the Marco Polo vase. So it is in the treasury of San Marco in Venice. So that was the first time porcelain arrived right, in Europe. Right. And then we also know at 1710 there was、uh, the founding of、um, Meissen through lots of well-documented story of Botka finding and discovering,、uh, whatever way word you want to use, porcelain, and、um, And it became this incredible material that everybody、uh, fell in love with. Quite an incredible journey, really. And when did your relationship with this particular material start, Peter? Oh, <laughs>、uh, for those of you who know very little about Blondochine and very little about Dahua, Dahua is a mountainous town in、uh, Fujian Province. It's Five thousand meters above sea level, and is a very mountainous region. So, for the export to work, it has to go up and down,、uh, and some river transport, and then eventually going to the port of Quanzhou for export. So, Quanzhou was、uh, a thriving port during the Ming Dynasty、uh, for export. My association with Blondochine, mainly through the very beautiful Buddhazafa figures of Guanyin. And you are sitting in my home, and you can see the Guanyin. They have this most incredible serenity about them,、uh, which I grew up with looking at, and I eventually fell in love and slightly obsessed by by them.、Um, I don't know why.、Mm. I, I just think is that they have a. Quality that is slightly jade-like, and there is a Chinese word which I struggle to translate. And the Chinese word is called run, and run often refers to things that is slightly fatty and glossy, and have an appearance of softness, and yet it is not soft.、Mm. So. So it has all those qualities which I I, I really love,、uh, and of course, being、um, a ceramics designer, I love what it can do as well.、Um, so that's how I started. That's quite interesting. What can it do? What can it do? It's very malleable. So if you roll the standard test for plasticity in clay, is if you roll a little sausage. And you bend it into a loop, and whether it breaks or have little cracks form, when you use this clay, inevitably it doesn't crack. So it has a very high sense of plasticity,、mm. which means、uh, modelling.、Uh, when you model fingers, when you model drapery in a statue, it becomes very fluid. In the Hua, it's called washed. So.、Right. When you wash it, it's like you're smoothing the finger marks away. So you you wash it with a with a Chinese brush.、Mm. Uh, 
often a goat's hair brush and uh, to make it smooth. And then it could be left high fired with no glaze on, which is not the norm, but is becoming more, you see it more frequently, is becoming kind of more usual as a finish, like the French would uh, call the bisque statue. Mm, yeah. Um, then, yeah, so you have that quality to it. You also have that quality that it's really hard to describe until you see it. It it is very translucent. Mm. And you don't really see that in the statue because, you know, a lot of these originally were press molded and they were about maybe five, six centimeters thick. So you really don't see that translucency, but it's very dense and and as a material quality, which your your podcast is all about materiality of of, of, of things, it is very very appealing. Mm. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the glaze. Oh, the glaze is just—it's like a pebble with running water constantly over it. It's just very beautiful. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about you and your background? <laughs> it's lovely that because your eyes kind of almost kind of glazed over. I mean, it's fascinating. Oh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> well, also, we're sitting here. We have some cups. Uh, we'll talk about them later, maybe. Uh, I mean, you could see, you know, you could pick it up and you could see how light it is, how yeah, yeah. beautiful and that wonderful. We don't even have to hold it against the light. You just, the light just comes through it and it has that wonderful quality to it. Because you were born in Hong Kong. Born in Hong Kong. Uh, yes. Your father was a dentist. Yeah. Did he? Am I right in thinking he did Bruce Lee's teeth? Am I making he that did. up? He did. He <laughs> did. Yeah, I, uh, you did not make that yeah. up. My father's claim to fame was that he was uh, Bruce Lee's dentist. Did Bruce have good teeth, I wonder? I, I think he has good teeth after he met my, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 my father. And he also did, there's an actor called... Uh, Zhao Yunfat, Zhao Yunfat, who is, um, I think he's in one of those Kung Fu films. Right. Uh, and he's quite a well-known actor. So he's, uh, he's, my father is uh, a dentist, but he's also one of, he has a great eye for aesthetics, for beauty. And one of the things that I remember him saying to me that, he said when he would make new teeth for actresses, but specifically actresses, he'll make the front set of teeth slightly sort of like they kind of stick out a bit. So slightly bucked tooth. Is mm. that the right mm. terminology for it? If your teeth stick out. Um, and he said it looks more attractive. And then you suddenly realize that it's a very, very... Um, early form of cosmetics but mm. without surgery without mm. injection to push your upper lip forward and make you have a pout so That's it, interesting. It, yeah it's very interesting mm. isn't it and uh, so he he does have that um a great aesthetic quality and of course he made all his own teeth his false teeth false teeth for his patients so um as a child i would be in the technical room, and I would see him melt wax and then put various teeth together and put it on the wax, and he would move them and then 
color match things. And even if patients want, I want white teeth, he would not give them white, white, white teeth. Mm. He would say, well, actually, I can give you a shade whiter. It, then it looks more natural rather than giving you super white teeth. Mm. And then everybody knows that you don't actually really have super white teeth, but they, they are false. So it's all about looking natural, looking beautiful and enhancing facial features. Your mum was a botanist, I think. Yes, as well. that's right. And so did they encourage you to become, I mean, when did your interest in art start and did it, were you encouraged when you were a child? Well, Grant, you've interviewed me before and I, I'm sure I've told you the story about going to visit um, one of um, our relatives who, uh, at that time, a lot of people in Hong Kong came from Shanghai mm. and they were um, escaping the communist regime. And so they bought a lot of their belongings that they could carry with them. A lot of them had boxes and boxes of gold or chains, gold chains. Um, I remember my mother showing me a gold chain with no clasp at the end. And I said, well, how do you wear it? She said, no, 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 it's not for wearing. It's for cutting off to buy your way mm, out of something yeah. through or food <coughs> or, or whatever it is. And um, I mean, that's a life that we would never understand <laughs> because we never had to. Mm. So, so one of our relatives, he had with him his favorite collection of porcelain. They're not huge items. Uh, and, and, and a um, shelf. The shelf is called a babalge. So babalge is a um, hundred precious shelves. So they are these, you may have seen them. They're kind of irregular shelves uh, made out of uh, beautiful uh, uh, dark wood. And you would place your treasures in them. And uh, he would have the exact numbers, I can't remember. I just remember that feeling of the whole space. So he lived in uh, a flat in a house which was divided into three flats. I think he lived in the ground floor flat. It was very dark and cool, it had a huge high ceilings. It was very colonial, it was a colonial mm. building. And he had these curtains that were, I think they were dark brown, and he had this shelf in front of it. And he had a collection of blue and white um, ceramics, whether they were Ming, I don't know, but you know they were blue and white. But what was so incredible is that when you visited, when I would go in the wintertime, he would change it all into Sang de Boeuf, that ox blood red glaze in the same space. So I think what I really fell in love was this curation right. that he had, um, more so than the porcelain. I, I, I'm, I've fallen in love with the porcelain already, I think, but that is the curatorial aspect that really stuck in mm. my head. Mm. So that's... Yeah, that's be, where it all started. I'll be, what, 10, nine. Yeah. Because so, often uh, I come from a family of doctors, my father, both my parents are doctors, cousins, grandparents, and often dentistry is kind of similar. There's a certain yes. pressure to, to join the, the, the profession, though you weren't under any... I was. Right. Um, 
you know, um, I, I was hopelessly, uh, I was useless at uh, academia. You know, I didn't get great exam results, and so they don't equate to going to become a doctor. But I also, when I first came to the UK, I was 16, and I was in the fourth form. And I think in the fifth or the sixth form, lower six, we had a fantastic um, ceramics teacher. We had a great ceramics department, an art department, which I loved. Mm. And I hadn't really touched clay properly then uh, until that moment. And um, so we... um, and her name is called Trish Phillips. And we got on very, very well. And I just started making things. And I think there was that moment that you know, wow, this is amazing stuff. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, your logical side would say, oh, well, I have to do this for my parents. And then, you know, this one. And it, mere living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it's, um, uh, but my parents were very, very supportive when I made the decision that I was going to go to art school. Right. They said, well, just be great at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. It must have been quite a culture shock coming to the UK at 16. Um, well, Hong Kong is a slightly different place, mm. isn't it? It's, it's, it's not a different country. <laughs> it, it is... It, when I was there, it was a colony. Uh, and I think it's a great time to talk about Hong Kong then and Hong Kong now. Mm. I, I feel really proud of what the Hong Kong, the young Hong Kong Chinese are doing now because they have a voice. Whereas when I was young, that's in the 70s there, um, 60s and 70s, you know you could be the cleverest person in the world, but you would always be number two. Right. You can never be number one. To a, be- to a, a British colonial. Or, yes, yeah. that's right. So you would always, you know, the head of a, well, the Hong Kong governor was sent from the UK. Mm. So you could never be that. Mm. It was just, it just kind of, um, it filtered down all the companies, if you, is kind of all the holding companies would have uh, non-Chinese mm. as a head. But at the moment, we've got an issue, haven't we, with the protests that are going on where actually they seem to be the Hong Kong inhabitants are rebelling against this notion of China having too much interference. There is a thing about um, your word, isn't there? You know, your word of being able to say, well, the handover was in 1997 and it should remain unchanged for 50 years. And it's not quite 50 years yet. Yes. So how do you feel about that, I wonder? As as somebody who obviously grew up there, what's going on at the moment? Um, I have never called Hong Kong my home. Right. I've always called UK my home Mm. uh, for a very simple reason that... uh, don't think I can live in Hong Kong. That's interesting. Why is that? Why is that? There's not a huge art scene. Um, And when I was younger, being gay wasn't 
very acceptable. Right. And so, you know, for all those reasons, I never kind of saw it as a natural home for mm. me to stay in. Mm. And the minute you've moved out of um, a, a place and you've tasted the outside world, you think, oh, wow, this is great. I, you know, I feel I could live there, but I could live here too. And, you know, and we're so mobile now, you know, mm. we were just, we're really global citizens. And so at 16, was coming to the UK a relief in that case? There were lots of feelings. It was a fear. Uh, and of course, I was homesick. But it was also the excitement of living in a completely new country, which you, I don't want to use the word chocolate box, but it is a little bit like that where you're coming, well, I went to Somerset, so it is all very pretty. Mm. And um, so you go uh, and live in this very English place. Um, you went to public school. Um, my house was, uh, it was a Georgian asylum building. <laughs> so I don't like, really. That's a public school system. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really exciting, you know, all these kind of hidden staircases and, and all of that. And yeah, I just fell in love with it. Mm. I, I just thought it was really beautiful. So at what, what age did you think that clay was going to be a kind of way you could make a living? I never thought about making a living from it. I always thought that it was something I love to do and I am good at it. Uh, I went to Farnham, I did my college degree, my BA, and halfway through I discovered plaster. And I thought, Wow, this is amazing. And it's because sorry, the degree was not was an art degree, it wasn't it was a ceramics degree. It was a ceramics it degree. It was a ceramics so. degree, and I was fully signed up, dungaree throwing, hand digging clay. I should have liked to have seen you in dungaree. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a pretty sight. So um yeah, I, I really was fully signed up to all of that. And I love throwing, it mm. was very direct. Um Yes, so, and then I discovered plaster, and there was this material that, in powder form, when you added it to water, would set rock hard, and it gets warm. And between setting rock hard and it in a creamy liquid form, it went through this process of this metamorphosis process where it slowly becomes cheesy and you could form it. It's strong enough to hold its shape, but soft enough to be pushed around mm. and played with. And then when it was hard, it was like solid and you can make very crisp edges and lines with it. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. I love it. So, and it allow you to make multiples of things. And I think that was where I discovered that actually I really love in manufacturing. Right. Because making one is great, but making a container load is amazing. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. that satisfaction. So. Yeah, that's no, interesting. Because I always presumed that 
you went to the Royal College until we spoke a few years ago, and it suddenly discovered that you went to Stoke on Trent yes. to do your MA. That's right. Yes. And was was going to Stoke on Trent because that's where the production was? Is that why you that's went there? That's right. Mm. Yes, yes. I, I gimply tell people it's my lifestyle, <laughs> you know, my champagne lifestyle, that, uh, that I needed support from mass production. But it's not really <laughs> true, obviously. It's the, the fact that I just... And very early on, I understood that manufacturing does not equate to machine making. There is a huge amount of craft mm. in there. And that was what I really fell in love with, that I began to learn all these things so I could put a litho on a plate, I could screen print litho, I know how to make a screen, I could do artwork, I could band and gild. And some of these very um, old techniques like um, race pasting, um, I've tried my hand at pet de verre. Um, I wouldn't tell you <laughs> how good I am or how uh, at it. Uh, um, I have done uh, ground laying. You know, people were asking, what the hell is ground laying? Mm. You know, before screen printing a solid band of color, you had to put it down. And you had to put it down with this special oil called ground laying oil, and you dust full lead <laughs> uh, enamel color onto that, and then you would have to pounce it really smooth and evenly with a little silk pa uh, pad. And I learned to make my own tools, and it was just really, really, really mm. exciting. What was Stoke like in those days? Fascinating. Yeah. It was just at the point when factories were closing um, and you had and at that time there were all old boys <laughs> uh, and they were so close to retirement age mm. so a lot of them went to teach at the college and so I could I just had this direct relationship with decorators model makers mold makers um, who I just, I was like a sponge. I was just absorbed everything. I was mm. fascinated by it all. Mm. And it was that, the craft skill that was so important to me. So I think I'm right in saying your first job was at Park Rose Pottery. <laughs> yeah. And subsequently you became a product designer at Thomas Good, who purveyors of luxury. Uh, then you took on this role as head of homeware at Aspreys in yes. 2001, I think. Um, and you've worked at companies like Royal Crown Derby and Company Crystal. So you, you, this notion you're always more interested in the manufacturer than the studio. Yes, yes. But I love the studio. I mean, But also you're talking about getting your hands dirty. Oh, that was totally, still an important yes. thing. You but I got my hands kind of really dirty yeah. in the factory. I yeah. mean, you know, God. Um, I remember uh, I used to run the Thomas Good factory. And every morning I would check the slip. And the best way to check it is to dunk your hand in it and hold it up and just feel it. Mm. Uh, I remember this. Um, I can't remember who... Who told me this? Uh, we were both standing in a factory and this person said to me, he said, just close your eyes and listen. And you could tell the factory that's working well just by listening to it and feeling it. What were you listening for? 
I think there is a rhythm there. There, there are machinery going round. There are people doing repetitive things, and and if it wasn't functioning properly, for instance, um, if you unpack a kiln mm. or the um, bisque plates before they go to glazing, will have to go through a machine. So if something went wrong with the firing. You wouldn't hear the vibro machine making that noise. Then it would stop the spraying booths from spraying, mm, and mm. so you know there is this kind of overall feel and noise that a healthy factory should have. I mean, you've long had this kind of fascination, or throughout a lot of your career, you've had a fascination with bone china. Yes. And uh, how did that start, and why bone china? I was in the UK. And I went to Stoke, and Stoke was completely bone china driven.、Mm. And for those people who know very little about bone china,、um, it is an incredible material, but it's not natural.、No. It's totally man-made.、Mm. It only has twenty-five percent clay in it, which is extraordinary, really, isn't it? And it's only is invented by Josiah Spode,、mm. and it's only three hundred years old. A bit, now, a bit older than that, <laughs>、uh, but it is very, very translucent.、Um, it has a totally different quality to porcelain, and I learnt a lot about that material because that's what I was in that surrounding. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be working in a Ford factory making bikes or something, you know. It, you just adapt to that, and 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 what's so interesting is a lot of the materials, a lot of the techniques, came from Sèvres and came from Europe.、Mm. So Minton would be looking at Sèvres; they'll be employing people from the factories to come over as the head head painters. Or、uh, the pats were pat vases, or the panels were all painted by uh, 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 French artists, so or artisans as they、mm. would call them.、Mm. Uh, we, as now we know, they're craftspeople and highly skilled artists, really. And now you're back at Thomas Good, yes, creative director, yes.、Uh, so what does that role encompass, Peter?、Um, I look at. What we have in our archives, I look at a lot of young graduates who are coming out of art colleges,、uh, not necessarily in ceramics. In fact, a lot of them are not、mm. because、um, there aren't that many courses anymore. No, I know、uh, exactly.、Mm. That's a very, very sad thing.、Uh, also, a lot of people like to make new forms, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, the cost of generating new forms is very, very high.、Mm. So, in terms of tooling or tooling, yeah, and、um, and model making, and you know the whole whole shebang.、Uh, so, so we tend not to. I tend not to look at a huge amount of new forms, but occasionally you would slip in a new teacup, right, and a, a handle. So that just fits and sits very well. With it,、uh, a lot of it is surface pattern and decoration, and I really do genuinely want to bring back a lot of old techniques 
and give it a modern twist. And that's what I'm doing, really. When you come into a job like that, do they give you a brief? Do you have to find your own way through it? Do you come with ideas? How does that work? Or three things you mentioned, they're all amalgamated mm. in one, mm. and then you, uh, you look through that. And a, a huge part of my job is to work with uh, the commercial director and look at bespoke when people want special things, and is it possible to make this mm. for someone? Do you develop an eye? Do you have a sense of um, what will sell, what won't sell, what's going to work, what isn't? Now, are you always right? <laughs> this is really interesting. You know that before this interview, I went and had a meeting with David Queensbury. Right. And we were just talking about... Who's the ex-professor of Royal College yeah. of Art, yes. And also uh, Queensbury Hunt, which Indeed. is the most uh, important design duel we know mm. now mm. in ceramics and glass and tabletop. And uh, he was saying that, you know, they've designed things that everybody saw immediately and said, this is going to sell. And it didn't happen. Mm. And then they would design something that people were maybe, and then it's still in production today, mm. <laughs> you know, 20, 30 years on. So you can never, ever tell. And it also depends on the client. Sometimes a client would want that if they have that understanding of craftsmanship, they could really see that. So when something has a lot of handcraft in there, they actually see it, understand it, and appreciate mm. it. So it's not about commerciality or whether something sells or not. It is about the audience, and it's about trying to read the audience that's going to look uh, the piece of work. Mm. I mean, talk about audiences, you've also got this extraordinary, I mean, I guess it's a side hustle, Ting Ying? Is that, is that, <laughs> we, do we, can we call hustle. it that way? Um, I mean, what is Ting Ying? Is it a gallery? I mean, how, would, how do you describe Ting Ying and how did it come about? Well, the one thing I could describe it is it's not a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is for sure. We, um, so, so it all started um, in, I think... 2000, uh, 2016? Yeah, it happened in 2016. But, and Ying is my business partner, um, and his name is Ying Jian. So I have known Ying Jian for a long time, but I've never met him, right. nor have I spoken to him. So one day I was asked to look at a project and the project was for um, Art Basel in Hong Kong. Uh, and it was about a whole porcelain dining experience for Royal Salute whiskey. And, <laughs> and because they were very logical and they went through the list alphabetically <laughs> and being Peter Ting, I was quite low mm. down on the list. And... Um, I was asked in and I said, uh, it's a fantastic project. Um, it's a crazy project and you've wasted a lot of time looking for somebody to deliver it. And now you're asking me to deliver it in how many months? <laughs> Shock horror look on my face. And I was 
I was going to say I was 100% sure I could do it. Uh, I knew I needed help to do it. And I said to them, I said, I would give you my answer after this phone call. <laughs> so I called Ying Jen. Luckily, he was there. And he answered the phone. And I said, I know we've never met, but this project is here. I'd like to work with you on it. And he said, well, what, what is it? And so I briefly explained it to him. So everything was made of porcelain. So it was porcelain plates, porcelain cutlery, uh, books with porcelain covers. Right. The invite was in porcelain. Wow. The tabletop was in porcelain. We wanted to make the seats in porcelain. Um, there is a history of porcelain garden stools in China. And we didn't do it because we ran out of time, but um, it was great. And it was really great because both Ying Jen and I are a bit of a um, technical geek. So, and what was really good was everything was designed already. So we didn't have to go through that design process of having a third party, the creative director then, um, Vadim, at um, Royal Salute to okay things. He had all the work was done. It was just the pure technical production mm. that was needed. Um, so we took on that project. And then from then onwards, we just said, well, yeah, why don't we do a gallery? Why don't I do this? Why don't we do that? And we just started doing all kinds of things. And um, we manufacture for third party. Uh, we're very, very devoted to Blanc de Chine because Blanc de Chine and De Hoa have both become slightly second cousin. And I don't mind that, actually. I think it's great to be in a second place rather than, you know, if you're, if you're the world's number, number one, as you have, you've probably heard so many um, Michelin star chefs, when they get the three stars, they give it all back mm. because the pressure is just so great to remain in that level. And as we all know, Jingdezhen, which is a very famous porcelain city in China, uh, it's famous because all the Chinese imperial kilns were there. So, um, so the whole world flocks to Jingdezhen, uh, and the pressure is on to remain in that. So we work from Dehua, which is another porcelain city, and it's completely different. Mm. The people have a different quality about them. They're gentler. When I first went in 2004, um, you know, I just wanted to cut every bit of fabric they wore out because the color palette was just exquisite. It was this kind of gray with a yellowy beige with dusty pink with various shades of dirty whites. And oh my God, it was, it was dreamlike. Mm. The clay was amazing. The hand skills were incredible. But the skills, I mean, you, people have to see the skills to believe it. I've just recently learned, I went in March uh, this year, 2019, to, to work on um, some of my own work. I don't get a lot of time to do my own work. But you've built a, a centre out there, a workshop or a yes, studio? Yes, it's a we, studio. Yeah, yeah it's, um, we, we really call it a studio. And it's um, a beautiful open plan space uh, 
and it's on the seventh floor. The building actually sits on the rooftop of a big industrial building. Okay. Uh, and the industrial building is now full of startups. <laughs> so it's a, like a hotbed for startups. So you get um, photographers, people having have a desk, and then they run an online shop, and somebody needs to photograph. The work, so you get a photographer one floor down, or mm. you know, at the end of the the, the corridor. So it's a really thriving um, community, and yet on top of it, of this building, there is this beautiful serene space. We have glass windows either side, flooded with light, and um, we recently had two artists, Jeffrey Mitchell and Lucille Lewin. They visited and they worked with uh, the local craftsmen and craftswomen to make extraordinary things. Because mm. it seems to me you've taken this kind of conscious step of renewing your relationship with China. You know, it's, it's kind of fascinating because you've worked obviously with these British brands we've talked about. Yeah. Um, and I've read somewhere that your style icon is Rex Harrison. So there's this kind of very English thing about you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and yeah, oh, you turned Prince Charles's tartan into a into yeah a, into a, a pattern. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely yeah. for Thomas Good. Yes, it's um, yeah. I mean, Rex Harrison is so chic. You know, <laughs> his cardigan look is 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 very much admired. Um, I think it is about two things. One is access to China is a lot easier now. Uh, I don't have to apply for a visa because I was born in Hong Kong, right. so I could go in and out of China very easily. And that's given me a re renewed relationship with China. I, I'm very curious about the various places. And, and I go to Dohua because, yeah, it's just... That the people there, mm. they're amazing people. The clay, that's the reason. I mean, you've spoken in the past about having a kind of epiphany in Shanghai in 2004, <laughs> crossing yes. the road. Yes, yes, yes. It's, um, it, it, it was very, um, you know these things that, I don't know how often you get these epiphanies in life once, or, or they, might, they may happen often, but you don't realize mm. what it is. I mean, this was very much a very conscious thump in your gut thing. Oh. <laughs> um, and again, I think I don't want to keep bringing up the colonial past, but, you know, it is when you're in a place growing up, when you know you could be extraordinarily fantastic, but you can never be the best because mm. you could be the you 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 probably are the best, but you cannot be the top. Not because that you're not good enough. It's just because you're not the right color. And I have never thought of. I, I've grown up all my life. I have people call me names. I have people spat at me, and all of this. They have never in Hong Kong or no, 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 in, in the UK. Really, wow. Five years ago, really? <laughs> yes, um, yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's getting? I, w I wonder because obviously we're, we're at a moment in time where our politics in this country I mean, is happening in the world, but it's being polarized. Yeah. It, it, do you find that that 
moments of racism are on the increase at the moment, do you think? I think, yes, I think it is. Mm. It is that kind of casual, I'm not a racist, and yet I don't like you. That kind of ca- what I call casual racism mm. is on mm. the increase. Mm. And, you know, I get it from both score. You know, I'm not the right colour and I'm queer. So, <laughs> you know, I get two sides in one. But they, hey, such is life. And it has never genuinely ever bothered me. Um, and as I get older, I just believe that uh, uh, going back, actually, I'm sidetracking, going back to that moment in Shanghai crossing the road, that I've never actually seen myself as Chinese until then. Right. So I always say I'm British up till then. Now I say I'm Chinese-British or British-Chinese, yeah. whichever way yeah, yeah. it comes out. That crossing the road moment was really important because I really realized without a mirror, I saw myself and I actually saw, yes, you are exactly like these people who are Chinese crossing the road towards you and you look exactly the same to them as a Chinese person. And I just thought, wow, okay, Mm. good. (laughs) That's it. Move on. And, And I think from then I... I acquired just definitely the wrong word. I, I really understood a lot about how, why I am who I am. And, and a lot of it has to do with, because I'm Chinese, of course. Um, a, a dear friend of mine um, asked me once, you know that there is a Chinese test, don't you? I said, how Chinese are you? Test. And I said, oh, is there? And he said, how do you beat your eggs? I said, do you use a fork or do you use your chopsticks when you're making an omelette, when you're beating your eggs? And I said, oh, I use whatever is to hand. So because I would always have chopsticks in my cutlery drawer and I always have a fork in my cutlery drawer and whatever the moment is... (laughs) I would use, I, I've never even thought of that. Yeah, so, yeah, that's interesting. It is, it was very, very interesting. You know, what started as a fun question could bring up a lot of feelings about things. Mm. You know, um, as children, we had to learn to eat you know, with chopsticks very, very fast, otherwise you'd starve. Um, mm. I think I've probably taken up uh, almost enough of your time uh, so, so kind of the final question is the one we always ask. It's a bit of a cliche now, I suspect. But um, you obviously got the V&A show coming up. Yes. But uh, after that, future plans? Oh, future plans. Um, we, oh, yes, I'm, so can I do a bit of advertising? You, well, you, you can. I mean, we'll see if it makes the edits. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the V&A show, Blanc de Chine, a continuous conversation, opens on the 5th of September. Yes. 2019 and it closes on the 10th of May 2020 a full nine months of show I mean it's just amazing uh, and after that 
Brian Kennedy is going to curate a pop-up called Rear Windows. And there are four, uh, three galleries uh, showing there. There is uh, Taste Contemporary, Oliver Sears, and Ting Ying Gallery. So they all have titles. Uh, and the title for the Ting Ying show is called Florid. And that's going to happen in um, October. October. End okay. of October. Very good. So, so we'll look out for space. that. And it's going to be at Mason's Yard. So it's quite a central location. Which is where White Mason's Cubist. Yard is, yes, where's White Cubist, yes. And um, just two street behind um, Regent Street. Very is good. It, no, Piccadilly, sorry. Um, behind Fortnum's. Very good. Well, on that blatant piece of advertising. <laughs> good. We will, uh, we will close it there. Peter Ting, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Grant. It's been such a pleasure. And to learn more about Peter Ting's work, go to www.peterting.com. Meanwhile, Ting Ying can be found at www.ting-ying.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this from, and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.